Welcome to Novel Romantics, a podcast about contemporary American fiction. I'm the host of Novel Romantics, Douglas Cowie. I'm a writer and teacher, and this is the 10th and final episode of Novel Romantics. So if you've tuned in to some or all of the previous nine episodes, thank you for following along with us as we discuss various contemporary American novels. And if this is the first episode that you're listening to, then please go back. All the episodes are available in the same place you probably found this one. And uh, there's a lot, there's nine different novels for you to uh, listen to me chat about with a guest. Today we'll be discussing Transcendent Kingdom by Yagiyasi, and my guest today is Gregory Miller. Gregory Miller is an educator and avid reader. He was a classroom teacher for 12 years and now works in a nonprofit community organization doing outreach. His passion and work has been to create opportunities for young people who haven't found success in traditional education. Welcome, Greg. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming along and bridging a ridiculous time difference. I made Greg get up very early on a Saturday to record this. Today we're going to discuss Transcendent Kingdom by Yagiyasi. It's um, Yagiyasi's second novel. Uh, her first novel was Homecoming. And I have to say, so I read this novel a few weeks ago, and then I reread a bunch of it the other day while thinking about and preparing this podcast. And this novel does like... It kind of amazes me, it, I, and it almost it, it almost over or did kind of overwhelm me both times I read it, and it's kind of hard to put my finger on how to articulate what it is that amazes me about this novel. But I'm going to try right now before I find out what you think, Craig, because um, <laughs> basically this is a very straightforward novel that tells a story that isn't particular. It's not like a complicated plot or anything. Um, no. There's nothing like as far as like. It wouldn't spoil anything of the novel because as all this comes out in the, in the beginning of the novel, that this is a novel about a young woman who works in a research lab in Stanford doing um, neuroscience research. She's doing a PhD. Her mother comes to visit because her mother is basically very depressed. And the main reason that her mother is very depressed is because she's never gotten over the death uh, about 10 years earlier of her son, the, the protagonist's older brother, who's died of a heroin overdose. All of that comes out quite early in the novel. And and there's no there's really no more plot to the novel than that. It, the, the novel tells that story over 230 so, or 240 pages. It tells that story very straightforwardly. It's, it's a very, it's like, it's an easy novel to read. I don't mean that in a like it's simplistic or anything, but it's a very smoothly written, very easy novel. It's kind of a page turner, but also it's very dense and rich, but without being slow. And it, it also brings about 10 or 11 different thematic threads all together. Mm -hmm. they're, they're all there on almost every page of the novel without getting confused, without being unclear. And, and it does all, it, com it, it tackles all these different, quite complicated themes about I mean, I could run through a list in a minute if you want me to, but I, I'll hold off for now. But it does it in a very smooth and articulate and, and moving and beautiful way. It's, it's a, I, I genuinely think this is an extraordinary novel. I really thought it was just such an accomplishment and such an accomplished, smart piece of writing. I, yeah, I, I had a very similar experience where the, the reading it again 
you know, when you when you uh, when we started talking about doing this, I had read it once and I liked it. I liked Homegoing, the, her first novel, better. But I went back to reread it, and in rereading it, I there's a whole other there's an intimacy to it, and I think I, I very much the same. It's a straightforward. You kind of know you know most of the outcome, not the full outcome, but you know most of the outcome of the story when it starts. But she has this amazing ability to, there's this, you, you feel almost like you're sitting and she's telling you, there's this telling you the story and you're bouncing around kind of, you're bouncing between the present and her childhood growing up. Uh, but she does it in a way that feels both natural, but also really like perfectly controlled. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely, it's a, it's a novel of subtlety, but not in a like a overly intellectual way. In a much more like subtlety in the way that like humans, we have all these subtle aspects of being, and she captures and is able to to share them. And yeah, you put your finger on a really interesting thing there. It's it, the the in the telling of it that she's she's telling you a kind of matter of fact story mm-hmm. that has this looking back aspect to it. Of I'm reflecting on my own childhood my own upbringing but it's also in a different it's it's in a very clearly defined present of narration right there's like mm-hmm. one of the things that i always talk to my students about about point of view is it's not just like who's telling the story but it's also when they're telling the story and so she's telling this story that is mostly about when she was a child and it and a, a very young child in fact for a lot of the novel yeah but she's telling it from the position of she's a, a woman in her mid 20s late 20s yeah, I, think, I think she's supposed to be I think she's 28. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If I remember there's some it, it reference says it specifically there. at some point. I think you're right. 28 yeah. sounds right. And she's got this perspective that she can reflect back on and she's learned things obviously and she's thought about things and she's te- that's partly why she's telling you the story is because she's she has figured something out that's different. Her understanding of her childhood is different now than it was at the time, but it's not something that's a complete understanding. And so she's always moving yeah. back and forth between those. And I just want to read out a passage that kind of demonstrates what you were just talking about and what I've elaborated on. This is on page 28 in the novel, at least in my edition of the novel, um, which might be different. I think mine's the UK edition, so I think it is. Um, so it might be different, but anyway, it might be the same. So let me just read this passage because there's a lot a lot happening and it and it does it does exactly that thing. She's she's talking very specifically about a moment you get the sense of perspective you get a whole bunch of the plot of the story all in this one paragraph and so there's a lot happening it's a very simple paragraph there's a lot happening in very simple ways that pull story and theme and everything all together and so let me just read this Uh, again this is page 28 It was my high school biology teacher who urged me towards science. I was 15, the same age that Nana was when we discovered he had a habit. I should say Nana is her brother. My mother had been cleaning Nana's room when she noticed. She'd gotten a ladder from the garage so she could sweep out his light fixture, and when she put her hand in the glass bowl of the light, she found a few scattered pills. Oxycontin. Gathered there, they looked like dead bugs, once drawn to the light. Years later... After all the funeral attendants had finally gone, leaving Jollof and Wakai and peanut butter soup in their wake, my mother would tell me that she blamed herself for not doing more the day she cleaned the light. 
I should have said something kind in return. I should have comforted her, told her it wasn't her fault. But somewhere, just below the surface of me, I blamed her. I blamed myself, too. Guilt and doubt and fear had already settled into my young body like ghosts haunting a house. I trembled, and in the one second it took for the tremble to move through my body, I stopped believing in God. It happened that quickly, a tremble-length reckoning. One minute there was a god with the whole world in his hands. The next minute the world was plummeting ceaselessly toward an ever-shifting bottom. And then it, there's so much happening there. It tells it, it lives in a particular moment. It in fact it, it describes before you've seen it as a reader a scene that you get later. You get the funeral that she describes in a sentence yeah. there in in a much. It's an actual scene in the in the novel. But it also just she just weaves through the images, and it's always one of the things that I really admire about this novel is that her her images are always so precise, and and she lets her images do their work and tell her story. She doesn't editorialize on them very much. Um, she lets them kind of resonate. She repeats imagery back and forth across the novel, sometimes very spread out, and so that they mm -hmm. she just lets them kind of sit there and and bounce off one another to to make meaning, but all the thematic content is there. Her interest in science, the role of science in understanding, her interest in religion and the role of religion in understanding, the difficult relationship with her mother right in the middle of the paragraph. I should have said something kind mm -hmm. and I didn't. You know, the the opiates crisis, which, which runs right through this whole novel, the cultural what's the word I want to use, the cult, cultural kind of understandings and issues of this novel, because this is a, a, a mother who has emigrated from Ghana with her young son, and then the father comes as well, but then he ends up going back to Ghana, and then this girl who's born in America, so she's Ghanaian-American, they're naturalized um, Ghanaian-Americans, and so, so there's this immigration and race issues that are all bound up. The race issue doesn't come out so quite so much in that paragraph, but the, the ideas of cultural differences and cultural things that, that surround this novel and 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 also push this novel which i find really fascinating and interesting um, they're all there in one really straightforward paragraph and the whole novel is that straightforward yeah yeah i i think the first time i read it i i, I kept waiting for more and i think i sort of was in the wrong frame of mm -hmm. reference my first take on it was like that it was all um kind of it was i felt like it was leading up or like you know kind of giving us a backstory and then and, and then kind of I kept expecting something more to happen in the present and and as a result I wanted being somewhat disappointed as I went through it and I think I realize now that I just had the wrong I was I wasn't really I wasn't ready to just kind of sit with her it's it's really I think the way to to approach it here is to, it's like you're sitting with a friend who's who's at a point ready in her life to start dealing with the past that she's never dealt with and is now sharing it with you for the first time and so there's no like, there's no great resolution at the end. There's no like, you know, like significant action that, you know, where, you know, kind of things come to a head and, you know, the, the most, the closest thing you get to that is like a scene in a parking lot yeah. <laughs> and, you know, in, in where, you know, not a whole lot happens other than getting back in the car. But it's, there's this, I, I used the word intimacy before, if you're, you know, it wasn't until the second time reading it through where I was kind of ready for that to have that kind of experience. And for, with that angle on it, it, it is, it's such a pleasure to be, there's so many things that were familiar to this, whether to my own story or, you know, young people that I've, that I've worked with over the years. And then other things that were completely unique and, and um, kind of 
just perspectives that I or thoughts that I'd never really <laughs> come across myself. Yeah, totally. I, I love it. I, it's funny. I, I actually had marked up the same same exact Did passage you? that you that you just read there, which is page thirty one on my edition. Thirty one. Oh, well, good yeah. math work there. <laughs> um, can I ask? You may have already covered this, so it might be a, a um, redundant question, but why did you mark that passage um, as one that you kind of wanted to talk about? There's, I mean, there's a flow to, there's a flow and kind of, I think it does capture a lot of the different things in it. So you like, you're reading through it and you can kind of feel like her kind of building to a, um, you know, you could feel like even before she gets to that kind of the, you know, in that moment, I stopped believing in God you could just kind of feel there's this, she's starting to put it together. You know, this is still the beginning of the book and she's mm -hmm. starting to make all of these connections. And, but yeah, just that, I, I don't know, just the, yeah, the, it just, you can kind of feel that she's having, she, there's a moment that she's having there. Is she, you know, if, if you're imagining kind of sitting with her and she's telling you like, this is a moment where she's starting to make a connection. And I think, I think there's a, quite a few places in the book where it's sort of, you can see her. She she's not. She's a very reticent person. Most of her communication, like in quotes through the mm -hmm. book, is like putting people off or holding them at distance. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. She uh, like so literally every friend that comes are... to her. Sorry, I'm talking over you, but I'm going to do it. Yeah, anyway. It's my show. Um, <laughs> like every person that she talks to, every person she becomes friends with, she refuses to talk about her brother, and they they can all tell that there's something. That's mm -hmm. bothering her, and she refuses to address, and she knows she refuses to address, it. and then she always ends up blurting it out in strange ways that that have. So one of the things I love about this novel is it doesn't editorialize on anything. So like mm -hmm. you see, you see her friends reacting to how she tells them these things, and some of them react well, and some of them react poorly, but you never. Gifty is the name of the um, narrator. You never understand what Gifty actually thinks about those things, or she never tells you what she, you, you can understand because of the way the story is told. But mm -hmm. like, there's the friend in college who who really kind of reacts quite selfishly, Anne and, or Annie, yeah, or in a way that's understandable yeah. but still selfish. And yet, Gifty never says it was selfish. She just narrates this is how our friendship. You know, she narrates the the facts or yeah. the plot of their of their friendship dissolving. Without saying, and she was a jerk, or I was a jerk, or anything like that. She, and and because neither one is true anyway. There's something in the middle, and it's one of the things I really love about this. It's it's a it's a novel partly because a lot of this novel is preoccupied in in really interesting and beautiful and moving ways. I think with the ways in which we find ourselves trying to create understanding for ourselves through religion or through science or in fact through medication and so on and there's, there's more to it than that it's hard to kind of do justice to it in, in a one conversation but it it addresses all those things in ways that never preached you about the answers that this character is finding this character is is finding answers trying to find answers but never beats you over the head with any of uh, the things which i think is a really extraordinary and difficult accomplishment to achieve i wanted to this is a like a i'm i'm hoping this will bring a couple things together <laughs> we'll find <laughs> out um i want to read another passage because the the one i read on page 28 or 31 depending on which version <laughs> of the um hymnal you have at home uh uh is where she narrates the moment of her losing her 
I was going to, I'm going to have to quote R.E.M. losing her religion, um, her mm-hmm. losing her faith in God in, in this moment after her brother's funeral. Um, but there's this other moment which comes, so that was, again, uh, page 28 or 31. This is, this is 100 pages later in the novel. And this is part of what I mean about the way that she plays images and moments for their resonances off one another without calling attention to the fact that she's doing that. But it just does it. It's a real... It's a really like a, one of the real beautiful. I'm going to just end up saying this for you know eight thousand times over the course of the conversation we had today. But it's it's one of the real beautiful accomplishments of this novel, I think. So this is her as a child. There's this thing in the church where they call people up if they if they for oh, yeah. I forget what the term is off the top of my head. Um, and this is after her brother is injured and he's a he's a star basketball player and he's injured his ankle and he's prescribed. Oxycontin, which leads to this um, drug dependency, which eventually kills him a, a few years later. And this is shortly after that, um, the Sunday after that accident or that injury, and she's in church on her own. Her mom has had to go to work, and she's there on her own, and she decides to to step up to the front to receive the blessing of the of the minister at church. And this is almost like the opposite of the moment that I narr- that I narrated that <laughs> that I read aloud yeah. <laughs> earlier. I think one thing one thing that's relevant to understand is that they're you know they're this Ghanaian you know Ghanaian American family going to a, a white Pentecostal like really quite conservative church in it's Birmingham Alabama. So like they're they're the Hunts- only black Huntsville. family in the. Or Huntsville, yeah, sorry, in Huntsville. Uh, they're the only black family yeah. in this church. Yeah. And so it's, they're, they already stick out. So this is, um, I'm not going to read the whole page, but I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs. I didn't move at all. Something came over me. Something came over me, filled me, and took hold. I had heard that altar call hundreds of times and felt absolutely nothing. I had prayed my prayers, written my journal entries, and heard only the faintest whisper of Christ. And that whisper was one I distrusted, because maybe it was the whisper of my mother or my own desperate need to be good, to please. I hadn't expected to hear the loud knocking on my heart's door, but that night I heard it. I heard it. These days, because I have been trained to ask questions, I find myself questioning that moment. I ask myself, what came over you? I say, be specific. I had never felt anything like it before, and I've never felt anything like it since. Sometimes I tell myself that I made it all up, the feeling of my heart full to bursting, the desire to know God and be known by him, but that is not true either. What I felt that night was real. It was as real as anything a person can feel, and insofar as we know anything at all, I knew what I needed to do. Hmm. Again, it is, there's so there's like... <laughs> like 300 things I want to say about this one moment. Yeah. First of all, I, I hope it's obvious listening, like how that resonates off the, the much earlier moment where she describes letting go of exactly the feeling that here she's, she's for the yeah. first time reaching out and, and touching it. Also this, this be specific. There's um, only a few pages earlier in a, in the previous chapter. She, she asks her brother to describe what he feels like when he's high on these on these opiates and he says it just feels good and he and he can't describe it and she says try harder so the be specific Mm -hmm. is kind of her own try harder to herself which she says fairly explicitly in that paragraph but again in such a kind of smooth integrated way that it, it just becomes part of the fabric of the novel 
there was one other thing I was going to say, and now I've just totally lost my train of thought. But um, <laughs> it oh, you know, the mother is there, and, and the the distrust of the religion because of her mother. So it brings this intergenerational thing in again. I could go. I could really talk for a long time in a way that I probably won't today about about the the mother the the mother you've already brought up this white Pentecostal church. There's the mother who prays. She prays a lot in this novel. Gifty prays by writing prayers in her journal when she was a, she's a kid. And the church prays. Yeah, they're cute. <laughs> and the people in the church pray collectively and whatever. And the difference in all of those prayers is really fascinating to me because Gifty essentially she's a child in, in these prayers. Um, again, like we've seen, she gives up religion as, as a child. You know, after her brother dies, she gives up her belief and she stops praying in the same way. But her prayers are all like really childish and very selfish. She's always praying for bad things. Le- letters to letters yeah, to God. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Um, <laughs> and and the church is often praying in ways that um, make that that uh, what I wrote in my notes was self-aggrandizing, which I think is a little bit unfair, but not entirely. And it's like. They pray for Nana when he's when he's when he's a basketball star because he brings kind of glory to them as the, as yeah. the congregation. Yeah. And they pray they pray for their own sense of the of their glory in. I don't mean it's disingenuous, but it's there's something slightly also kind of selfish about it. And then the the mother's prayers are all outward looking. All of the mother's prayers point outwards to other people, and she they're they're incredibly unselfish. They're in, incredibly empathetic towards people who in certain situations in this novel she has no reason to feel empathetic towards there's a point where she works as a as a carer for for elderly people and and they go to the funeral of one of the men who 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 racially slurs her throughout his entire her entire employment with him uh, he's terrible and then the, the children yeah, are the daughter comes up and, and says this kind of awful thing like about how her dad was such a jerk and whatever which is all true and then the mother comes home and prays for this woman who has just kind of insulted her own father and insulted her and she prays for this woman to see you know to in, in a really unselfish way about that she will see how she's slighted her father and that she shouldn't this man who's clearly awful it's, it's a really beautiful and interesting there's not a lot of attention called to it. I'm calling a lot of attention to it because it's, again, it's it's an interesting thread of how religious belief and religious faith and, and religious action are dramatized in this novel. And it's, it's one of three different ones. There's the institutional one with the church. And again, the personal one with Gifty, the daughter of this woman and, and her own loss of faith and her attempts to find meaning in religion. You know, she loses her faith, but she still finds a lot of meaning in, in religion and in, in religious belief all the way through this novel yeah she uh, there's this she has this whole ambiguity throughout you know where she you know by the time she's telling the story she's 28 she's a scientist right so she's a she's a research phd candidate at stanford she is a scientist and hard science but she she also she's kind of given up on her own belief at the same time she doesn't accept like people's kind of blithe put downs mm-hmm. on religion as uh, you know the opiate of the people like actually the, at one point when she's an undergrad somebody says like you know religion is the opiate of the masses and here she is like nobody knows this of course she's like uh no opiates are the opiates of the masses that's an incredible moment <laughs> you know, to, she won't... to have pulled that off <laughs> it's totally... tells you what a good writer <laughs> yeah. she is because it's such an obvious clunky thing to do right and in, in a lesser writer's yep. hands it's like oh bam and she just because she's yeah. done so much work making all these things come together in in her in her story that she's telling and her her means of storytelling that moment hits and you're mm-hmm. like uh oh this could be a and she 
nails it. <laughs> yeah, but she does it, and even still, it's not like this like victorious no, moment. For not Gifty. at all. Instead, it's like it's in the context of this like she's this shy kid who doesn't really want to be engaged in this lab in this you know basic sciences class at Harvard, and you know, but she also won't accept like kind of these, I don't know, probably, you know, liberal blithe, um, you know, dismissals of, of mm-hmm. the importance of religion in people's lives. So it's, she, she occupies these two kind of two areas. She probably agrees with some of their, some of their sentiments, but she also won't let them because she goes on to talk about her, like, she's like, but my mom, you know, for her, this is so important. This is real. And that she also she also that. dramatizes it in the character of Pastor John, the the leader of this church, who mm-hmm. he's not always a good guy in this novel. There's times where he really lets Gifty down, where she kind of looks at him mm-hmm. as a kind of hypocrite for various reasons. I, I don't think mm-hmm. I'll go into the reasons why uh, about that because I think it's one of the things that it's worth leaving to people to discover themselves when they read the novel, but he's kind of presented particularly early on as a kind of hypocrite, but he's always there looking after this family and there's a moment when her mom really has a breakdown after Nana's death that she that she says like oh pastor John came and she's like I didn't and she says something like, you know, I didn't always like this guy. I didn't always think but in this moment I was uh, for this moment, I would forever be grateful to him, and he stayed in our lives ever since. And, and he's there from the very beginning of the very first he is page there, of the yeah, novel. Yeah, he continues to be there up to the. And so it yeah. becomes this kind of complex, again, very straightforwardly done complexity, which is I, this is the thing I'm having a hard time like articulating exactly as I want to because I think it's so deft that it's it's very straightforward but very complex at the same time. This guy is co- a complicated man who ultimately is acting out his religious faith and his religious leadership role in the way that is true and real and and selfless, even though he's acted selfishly in other areas of the novel. Not in like, I'm I'm starting to make it too mysterious for for the... (laughs) It's all good, but like yeah, no, it's not like he's it's not like he's like you know some criminal like oh you know, no no like, no no, no. he's not yeah, immoral just, or anything he, like that. Yeah, it's just he just you know he's allowed to be complicated. He, he protects and his own he protects his own in his own identity in certain ways that like one of the big themes for me about this is this novel is is the ways in which you you try to create and understand both of those things your personal identity through all these different vectors i suppose is the word like the religious vector the scientific vector the american vector the ghanaian vector the Mm -hmm. um racial vector of being a black american the uh, i don't know i wrote down about 10 or 11 different things oh through um the way you try to understand yourself through literature and the humanities there's lots of literary quotation Mm -hmm. again a, a very difficult thing to do in a novel that she handles in really nice ways um as as this character starts to study literature and things like that, again, drugs, you know, or, or medication, um, the way that addiction and depression start to create an identity, the way that athletic ability starts to create an identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it lets all these things run. Yeah. You know, going back to what you the passage that you were reading from before at the church and your, what your comments about, you know how they they're embracing him. You know they're still embracing him as a as the basketball star mm-hmm. and the one who kind of you know represents their community well. By the time you know addiction has run its course, he's you know the, the memories of his basketball glory are, are are long in the distance. And 
she, you know, like at one point, you know, there's like some reference these she overhears these two women talking about, you know, kind of dismissing, you know, he's 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 moved from being the kind of the token basketball star who's, you know, uh, lauded for, for his glories on the court to kind of instead a very different, but also like both of them are kind of racialized, you know, certain roles, right? He went from the kind of the black sports hero to the black drug addict, right? And so there's this sort of dismissal of uh, by these two women in the church who have known both of them their entire lives, basically, which is like really hurts. It's one of those really interesting moments where lots of things get compacted into a couple of lines of spoken to these church women. It's like they're the same people who were like, we pray for Nana and the big basketball game and the glory that he brings to all of us and to you, Lord, to and it's really racialized and really othered. Oh, you know how their kind get a taste for the, yep. you know, and it's yeah. really nasty. It, it really it really it, it is. And it actually it serves to highlight I think one of the things that's really kind of special about the book, in a in a way, you have a, you have one of the one of the main characters in the book, Nana, is a, a young black man who's a, addicted to drugs, and yet it doesn't feel like any other. You know, there's this that's a well, you know, that well trod uh, mm-hmm. territory there, usually really poorly in in works of fiction, especially kind of you know on screen. And here, this feels like it's a it's a story of the opioid epidemic, and it allows him to still be human. It allows him to be uh, part of a family and, a, and in a community. It's a very humanizing look at addiction. Uh, when you know, which we've you know, there's certainly been a lot. You know, the opioid, and then I, I think you've probably read you know different things, kind of criticizing the way that the opioid epidemic has been not just covered in journalism, but responded by, you know, through legislation uh, and the kind of overall conversation around it, because it's, you know, a much more largely white and rural phenomenon mm-hmm. versus like the crack, ed- crack epidemic. And, you know, really, you know, heroin, you know, heroin has kind of always been around. And like the way that in the 80s, we responded like, you know, the, this, you know, kind of the moral panic of the crack ep- epidemic. You know, he's, he's allowed to be human. Mm-hmm. And which I, I think it's there's not a lot of portraits of young black men who struggle with some of these things um, that are so humanizing and not polemic or you know so I, I think it's there's there's a it's yeah you know, that's another area I think is quite quite unique and this is this, this is the moment where he's prescribed the medication. Um, which interestingly, so like the doctor sort of comes in, says, here's what's wrong with you. It's not something to worry about. I'm going to give you some pain medication so you don't have to worry. Like, you'll be fine. And, and this is the moment that their whole, like, this is, uh, this is the very end of chapter 27. It's page 128 in mine, 131 in yours. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> uh, but um, I'm going to. I'm going to use this as a focal point for for following up on what you were just saying. I don't really remember much else from that day. I don't remember going to the pharmacy to pick up the pills. I don't remember if Nana got crutches or a brace, if he spent the rest of the day sprawled out in our living room with its foot elevated, eating ice cream while mother waited on him as though he were a king. Maybe all those things happened, maybe none. It was a bad day, but the nature of its badness was utterly ordinary. 
just regular old shit luck. Ordinary is how I'd always thought of us, our foursome that had turned into a trio. Regular. Even if we stuck out like sore thumbs in our corner, tiny corner of Alabama. I wish now, though, that I could remember every detail of that day, because then maybe I could pinpoint the exact moment we shifted away from ordinary. So what I want to say about that is I, I think she's she's both narrating there and telling you with that repetition of the word ordinary and then the, the one regular, which is obviously in, in this sense a synonym for ordinary. She's really getting to the heart of exactly what you were just saying. She's she's saying this is this is the worst day of my entire life, of my entire family's lives. But it was such an ordinary day. And and to understand it as both horrible and ordinary is is what you have to do in order to understand and do justice and not make a sensation of not make a sensation of it's not there's nothing sensational about this it's it's terrible and horrible and it's ordinary and again there's like two or three different threads thematic threads of the novel built into there because it's about family it's about the generational issue and the fact that the father has left and it's about so it's also about that immigration issue. It's about the ordinariness of their Americanness, even though they stick out like a sore thumb, which is one of the real tremendous accomplishments of this novel as well. I think that she she shows you how utterly American and how utterly un-American these people, how utterly American these people are and how utterly un-American they're treated. Um, it's a slightly crummy way of putting it, I realize, um, all the way through. So we we are we are regular ordinary people, even though we stuck out like a sore thumb. And you see them being sticking out like a sore thumb. There's there's one brilliant image of this that like I just think is one of the great images, almost unremarked upon in, in the novel, um, right in the middle of it, which we can, we can come back to later. But um, that sense of ordinariness, and that ordinariness is also just a terrible thing about it, really pinpoints for me, I suppose both what's at stake. Again, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse a little bit here, but it's—I think it's a. <laughs> this is a. I was gonna say it's a dead horse worth beating. I'm not sure that's true. Um, it's, I think it's a—it's a—it's an idea worth repeating. Just like, what does it take to be a? Yeah, <laughs> that's a really yeah. really rough horse. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure that was uh, one of my finer moments. In, in no animals yeah. were harmed in the in the making of this podcast. <laughs> we just need to make sure that that's clear extemporaneous to speaking lessons with Douglas Cowie. Um, but it's like. It's, I think it's a point worth repeating and, and about this novel is the way in which she takes seriously the ordinariness and which she takes and she takes seriously the importance of the ordinariness of the good and bad things that happen in this novel. There's, mm -hmm. in fact, a moment I want to I think the whole novel gets distilled in a very, very short paragraph at the very end of chapter 52 um so she like i said earlier she works in a gifty works in a stanford neuroscience research lab she's doing experiments on uh mice to do with addiction and she's so they they feed them this um sweetener um, that they get addicted to really ensure ensure yeah <laughs> they, they this used to, they would use drugs but then they're like yeah that's too expensive and complicated they just they just they'll easily get addicted to ensure to ensure so they <laughs> So they, they take them to insure and then they do experiments to see how they respond to different things or whatever. It doesn't really matter for our purposes exactly how all that works. But there's so they, they press a lever to get more to get more insure. 
which is yeah, a stand-in for at cocaine some point in they, Mouse World. Yeah, and, and at some point they like begin in, instituting like, like a, a randomized is it a shock or something yeah, like that or yeah. like so there's like you there's a sort of risk element that they know that they're going to get. So here's here's my contention is that everything that's great about this novel, and in fact everything that's going on in this novel, gets concentrated into this two sentence paragraph. When I watched the limping mouse refuse the lever, I was reminded yet again of what it means to be reborn, made new, saved, which is just another way of saying of needing those outstretched hands of your fellows and the grace of God. That saving grace, amazing grace, is a hand and a touch, a fiber optic implant and a lever and a refusal, and how sweet, how sweet it is. This, like... The concentration of imagery there, the the <laughs> sounds of the and resonances of the exact diction, the exact language that she's using, like whether it's the amazing grace, how sweet it is rather than how sweet the sound. It, she's she's mm-hmm. playing with all kinds of things in these two sentences. And, the, and at this point, it's quite late in the novel, that that paragraph, I guess, uh, chapter 52. And so you've got all kinds of stuff, all kinds of language and imagery and ideas and stories that are already in your head because she's been telling you in this, the way that you described it as a friend telling you a, a story about herself and who she is and what her life has been. All that's going and you and you hit this and it's just, it just explodes across the whole novel for me. Uh, and I just think it's amazing. It's a genuinely incredible uh, achievement. Mm-hmm. That mouse, she keeps coming back. She she writes a fair amount of science here. I guess as um, watched she she was recently at uh, University of Wisconsin. I live in Madison, Wisconsin. She was here a couple of weeks ago for a lecture, and she talked about how the origin of this book, in part, is her her best friend is a you know is a neuro you know, has a background in neuroscience and does work kind of like this. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, Jassy is you know she's a writer. Uh, she is not a scientist at all. And, but so this kind of the science part of Gifty's story is based on her, this, this really close friend of hers. Um, she writes the science really, uh, it, it, it's, it's interesting because there's a fair amount of it. She doesn't, she doesn't, you don't ever, I never felt like she was dumbing down. Like it was, I, I felt kind of smarter. No. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I know everything uh, about neuroscience now. Cause I read a yeah, novel. Exactly. Yeah. yeah and it's, uh, well, this, it's is, this is exactly what um, science on Facebook. <laughs> this is exactly why Socrates banned poets from the Republic. You realize like now you think you can go do neuroscience cause you read a novel that exactly. convincingly held a mirror of neuroscience to yeah. you. <laughs> um, but she does a nice job of writing, you know, of yeah. writing about it in a way that doesn't feel like, She's trying to show off or, or dumb it down, but clearly, like the, the mouse with a limp is one that she come that she mentions multiple times. And it, it, I mean, it seems you know it's, there's a bit of a I think there's a connection with her brother, Obviously, right? His brother yeah. it's his knee, right? Is that his ankle. He, uh, or his ankle? Yeah. So it, you know the the limp. You know, there's kind of a I think a clear connection there, and she has a particular empathy for this mouse. Yeah, but I, I loved, I mean, the, the, the science side of it, I think, is, is really well done. But then, yeah, that's a great quote. I, I remember liking it, but I, I think your angle, your take on that, I, 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 hearing you read that again, it's like, yeah, that does pull so many things yeah, together. Yeah, and it's just poetry as well. They're just like the, she's, mm-hmm. a, she's a writer who really 
obviously pays attention to what I call the poetry of her prose, like the music mm-hmm. of her prose, the rhythms, the cadences, the sounds of the words. It's she she doesn't really put a foot wrong as far as those things go here. It's 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 so straightforwardly beautiful. The images all so work so well. The sound of the language often is wonderful. It, it mixes in. Um, various uh, there's two different Ghanaian languages that get alluded to um Tui and yeah I, I don't recall off the top of my head the name of the other one because I hadn't planned to bring this up but um um and I don't know anything about Ghanaian languages either but um but she she quotes a bit of her mother's language Tui and 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 and, and talks about like when there's a, there's a couple scenes that are set in Ghana when she's a girl she's sent over there to live with an aunt for a summer and and it and it mixes those things in in interesting ways in the sound of the language because her mother when she's there's a a really moving scene so there's a preoccupation it's a slightly unkind way of putting it's not really a preoccupation there is a theme a, a motif running through this novel that gets mentioned a couple of times about um jesus in the upper room washing the servant's feet this is a the oh, famous yeah. bible story of Jesus washing the servant's feet, which I've always found quite moving myself as a, as a, an idea and an image and whatever. Um, and mm-hmm. she mentions it a couple times. And then you get two scenes in this novel that parallel it or echo it. But in fact, mm-hmm. instead of what like I might be inclined to do thinking about such things, it's like, well, I'll have a scene where someone washes someone's feet. In fact, I have written it in a, one of my things, a scene of someone washing someone's feet. Instead, she she like she ratchets up the intensity of that. And there's a scene where Nana, um, while he's she's, I read her the first passage I read out is she sweeps the um, pills out of the light that he's hiding in the light, and so now he's detoxing, and he's um, you know he basically is he defecates all over himself and and his mother yeah. it's one of those again like I talked about the prayers earlier the how selfless the mother's prayers there's this selfless act of mothering that she does where she she picks him up she treats him like the ill child he is even though she's upset about the fact that he's losing himself to drug addiction and she bathes him and he's a you know six foot yeah. four you know he's a grown, big basketball you know, he's, a, he's still a child yeah. but he's 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 in the body of yeah this man. she picks him up and carries him to the bath and takes off his clothes and washes him and she's praying for him in in her native language what and Yagyasi moves she she uses the words and then tells you what they mean and 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 just again a light touch but just the music of that um, moment helps create the resonance and the texture of it and it gets repeated the image later in the novel she her mother she has to bathe mm-hmm. her own mother and she it's it's interesting because it in my edition that scene is spread over two pages and i was reading i read like the first two-thirds of the scene before i had to turn the page and read the rest and before i turned the page i just wrote a little line and i wrote a note in the, in the margin that said um like mother washing nana and then i turn the page and she keeps going she says and she herself self-consciously reflects on the fact that she's doing the same thing she mentions it explicitly makes the connection and and one of the things i really like this relates to the limping mouse as well is that she she takes these things that might be and that i think probably in fairness are obvious like imagistic parallels or whatever they're like the limping mouse and the limping brother are and the addicted mouse and the addicted brother are really obvious but but she makes them she makes a virtue of their obviousness or a virtue to come back to her word of their ordinariness 
in order to give mm-hmm. the novel life rather than making them clunky and and make and like she doesn't make you feel like they're clunky which is really impressive because there's so much that isn't obvious in this novel as well yeah there's so many things that could have been just like hit you over the head or just fallen flat i wouldn't say that gifty is humble she's not she's shy she doesn't no, she's still she's still trying to understand herself. She's 28 years old. She's in many ways kind of uh, still making sense of things. So so it doesn't it doesn't come out of like a you know a humility that she has. It's so much as it she's just starting to be honest. And I think because that's that's kind of the voice you get. It it allows us to experience you know some obvi- these obvious things or ordinary things in ways that are genuine and they're not preachy or like hitting you over the head uh, or just seem trite and that, that's a that's a remarkable accomplishment in, in, in any Absolutely. book where you could you could illuminate illuminate the ordinary in a way that feels beautiful and 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 holy yeah. she talks about there's there's another i i don't have it marked here but where she she says she begins to realize that everything is all things are holy and uh I think that's she, that that spirit. I think is permeates the book. Yeah, it it does this. So for various reasons, um, I've got this. Um, well, for the reasons that I was teaching it a couple of weeks ago, and I also was then just reading something that was that was discussing it as well. I was, I have um, Shelley Percy Bysshe Shelley's The Defense of Poetry, a defense of poetry uh, on my mind, and he says in that um, that poetry lifts a veil and make makes what is familiar strange and makes it beautiful and i love this idea it's i think it's a really important idea about how poetry about how art works that it takes and you've just described it yourself in describing this novel that there's these ordinary things and she creates something that makes you look at them in a way that's different and that different way that she makes you look at them is beautiful even when it's sad and difficult. And like, I found this novel di- su- sufficiently difficult that I had to set it down a couple of times just to decompress myself a little bit because I was found, I found it really, it brought me in a very, partly because of its ordinariness, it brought me to the brink emotionally without ever seeming to be trying to do that. It just, because it gets into your skin uh, in certain ways. And it's just extraordinary I don't know what else to say besides that. There's, yeah, no, I want to. I want to. Maybe this is a good way to try and wrap up our discussion. Um, there's an image that, when I read it, this is on page seventy in my edition. It's the end of chapter fifteen, and this image kind of haunted me for the whole time I was reading the novel, from the moment I read it. Partly because I didn't know, I didn't really know what to, what else to do with it, and it's an image that doesn't get repeated anywhere. It's not like some of the other things, some of the other imagery and, and, and languages that I've talked about, that we've talked about, are things that I kind of repeat across the novel and, and, and create, they, they create, they accumulate more meaning because of those repetitions and the resonances and the way that they, you know, the way that the, the mouse, the limping mouse plays across things or Mm -hmm. the moment of losing your religion versus the moment of discovering your religion or whatever the the washing of of bodies and all these things this one just comes in the middle in in well the first third of the novel doesn't get repeated but really for me it was such a striking image that it asked me to keep thinking about it and trying to think about it 
I'm not sure that it's one of these things where I suspect the author maybe liked thought it was a good image that resonated a bit on its own, which it does, and and maybe didn't expect someone like me to come along and be hung up on it. And then as I as a reader come to it and bring my own things to a novel and get hung up on it and so want to make meaning that an author has never intended or wanted to be there, but it doesn't matter because it's because <laughs> it's a work of art and we're allowed to it's I'm like, I'm trying to figure out what image you're talking about. I need to know. (laughs) So before he's a basketball star, when he's a younger kid, Nana plays soccer and his dad takes him to this all over the South, basically to play soccer games. And, uh, and he's really good at it. And he, he just runs circles around all these kids. And it's interesting that it's soccer. The father thinks soccer is the most beautiful game. It's it's called the beautiful game. Right. Yeah. And it's, game, but it's yeah. also it's it's kind of interesting in the way that soccer then he then quits soccer and this the scene I'm going to look at here is is the moment that he quits soccer and oh, then he t- yeah. starts playing basketball and that's a, that's a more American sport right so partly what's happening here is about this again an issue we haven't touched much on in our discussion but the way that the the threads of immigration and cultural difference and so on soccer as a slightly less American sport than basketball. Especially in Alabama, where yeah. like football is almost literally yeah, well, exactly. And she makes a point about that. Even basketball isn't football, right? You know, and yeah, but he he endures a lot of racism. It's explicitly laid out in the book while he's playing soccer because he's the only black kid playing soccer in Alabama. And eventually, so th- this is after the dad has gone. The dad has left and gone back from Ghana to Ghana for good, and 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 Nana is really distraught about that and so now the mom has taken them as one of the chaperones on this bus with the traveling soccer team to tennessee i think nashville nashville yeah that's in tennessee and it's and it's i mean it's i think it's worth uh yes uh i was was clarifying rather than correcting um i think it's worth pointing out that and this is a huge burden for mom yeah like you know she works paycheck to paycheck as a care you know in-home caregiver for multiple families you know, she's basically never around because she works all the time to be able to pay the bills. But they're required to chaperone a certain amount, you know, certain things. And so they have to do this bus ride up to up to Nashville. She's mm-hmm. got to take, you know, like a couple of days off of work, which is lost wages. And, you know, so there's, uh, there's also no childcare. So Gifty has to come along as well. Yeah. And so here's the moment. He refuses to leave the bus. And he, he just doesn't want to, he decides he doesn't want to play. And uh, and he said this to his mom and he's, I think he's crying. So they're sitting in the bus. Yeah, he's crying. And the game's about to start. And this is the image. And then I'm going to follow up with the, with a, par- a, a paragraph that comes after it to explain what I, what I mean. Um, it says, just then one of the referees came onto the bus. He saw the three of us squeezed into those small seats and gave us a sheepish grin, lifting that cowboy hat off his head and placing it onto his heart as though my family was the national anthem, the yellow school bus, a ballpark. Ma'am, we're about to get this game started and there are a bunch of boys out there saying they're star players still on this bus. The the image of a referee referee Mm -hmm. wearing a cowboy hat taking it off and putting it over his heart as though my family were the national anthem, <laughs> I just think is an extraordinary phrasing image. Like what an image. If you like any writer who can put right that image that way deserves 
a gold medal. It's such perfect, <laughs> perfect writing. And then the mom says, like, but you love playing soccer. And he says, I don't. And she says, fine. Like, it's, a, it's an extraordinary moment of motherhood that follows. I'm, I was amazed when she she says, OK, we'll yeah, go. We'll go. And, and in the background of what you just introduced. But, and, <laughs> yeah. and, it's, so, and here's the paragraph that follows. And what I, my contention here is that that image just placed there striking extraordinary image a referee again i'm i'm saying referee because he's judging he's a judge right he's a referee like there's like there's a certain symbolic value to that that isn't hmm. insisted on but it's there if you want to read it and i'm the kind of guy who likes to read a symbol um <laughs> takes his cowboy hat off puts it over his heart as though we were the national anthem demands or asks or invites you invites you is the right word for this novel to read this paragraph as though it's an expression of the family as national anthem as an ordinary this is an ordinary american family is what i mean mm-hmm. yeah. again that word ordinary that i'm borrowing from from yakiyasi nana she said sharply she being the mom and then she stopped and exhaled for so long i wondered whether she where she had been keeping all of that air she could have told nana that she'd lost a day's paycheck to chaperone this trip that she was already on thin ice with the reynoldses for missing work two weeks before when i wouldn't stop vomiting and had to be taken to the emergency room she could have told him how that emergency room bill was higher than she expected even though we had insurance that the night she'd opened that envelope she sat there at our dining room table crying into her scrubs so that we wouldn't be able to hear her she could have told him that she had already had to take on some extra work cleaning houses to afford the fees for the advanced soccer league and that those fees were non-refundable and she couldn't get her time back either all that time she'd spent working to afford a trip on a bus with a loud daughter and son who'd somehow realized in the two hour long bus ride that his father wasn't coming back we'll find another way home she said we don't have to stay here for one more second nana okay you don't have to play if you don't want to and then they walk to the Greyhound and get a station and get a bus home. Mm-hmm. It's extraordinary. And like again, the con- it's a beautiful condensed, moment. It's a beautiful moment of, you know, of, of kind of traumatic, troubling moment. This is, but it's also this is the national as though this is the national anthem. It's it's asking mm-hmm. you to see this as America, as American, as as part of the fabric of of the lived life of a country. I just think this. It is exactly what makes this novel such a extraordinary and moving and deft piece of you know writing piece of art yeah no i i agree that's a yeah it's a beautiful scene it's such a compassionate you know you can see the compassion of her mother she in that moment is loving her mother there are many other moments where she's mm. not uh, or really struggling yeah. to but there are certain moments in the book where she unequivocally she has this deep love and admiration for her mother's ability to transcend. Uh, I think all the other crap, uh, all the other stuff that's going on, and, and uh, yeah, that's a it is a it is a beautiful scene, and um, I think you're you're right that that I think if there's something that's that's really really great about this novel is that it's. It captures so much of the experience, so many things that could be othered or kind of cataloged as, you know, a book about, I don't know what, science and religion, about race, you know, all these huge things, but that she does it in a way that never feels like anything is pigeonholed or simplified, that, you know, the things that that, that are easily dismissed by one group or another are treated with, with respect. 
and she allows for doubt. And I think it's, I think it makes it quite beautiful and kind of unique in this time <laughs> of our lives where there's often so little doubt expressed in the public sphere. Uh, and so, so, you know, she allows things to be gray and unsettled and she's not yelling through a bullhorn one way it's or another. It's a deeply unpolemical novel about, yeah. as you've very beautifully articulated there, about big topics that often get treated as uh, objects for polemicism. And it, mm -hmm. I think the largeness of the empathetic heart of the narrator and by extension the writer is what makes this such a extraordinarily engaging and, and worthwhile novel i mean reading it twice in quick succession was a really exciting experience yeah i'm, I'm really glad that you brought this to me and and, and had me go back through it again because I, I my experience of it was so much more profound you know going through it the second time yeah so I'm really appreciative for that opportunity to do well, it again. I'm very glad that you agreed to join me on the Novel Romantics podcast. <laughs> thank you so much to my, my guest, Gregory Miller, for joining me on Novel Romantics. And thank you for listening. And stay tuned in the new year for some, some new podcasts from the American Centrum Hamburg and hopefully from me. Thanks, Greg. Thank you, Doug. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.